All right. Let me give you a little bit of an introduction. Let me help lay out the context. Uh, Micah is writing to the people of Israel, especially his own people of the kingdom of Judah. And the span of his life, as we'll see in verse 1, reaches from the collapse a few years before the collapse of the northern kingdoms of Israel with Syria as its capital, uh, leading up and towards the exile of Judah uh, into the land of Babylon. And so he uh, operates as kind of a klaxon call, a warning bell to call the people to repentance, to recognize what's about to happen. And in doing so, he extensively deals with the concept uh, and the habits or the lifestyles, if you will, of <coughs> injustice. Now, let's pick up and read from chapter one, beginning in verse one, and we'll read all the way through chapter one. The word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah which he saw concerning Samaria and Jerusalem. Hear, you peoples, all of you. Pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you. For the Lord from his holy temple. For behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth, and the mountains will melt under him, and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. All this is for the transgression of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. What is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap in the open country, a place for planting vineyards. And I will pour down on her stones into the valley and uncover her foundation. All her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All her wages shall be burned with fire. And all her idols I will lay waste. For from the fee of a prostitute she gathered them. And to the fee of a prostitute they shall return. For this I will lament and wail. I will go stripped and naked. I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. For her wound is incurable and it's come to Judah. It is reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. Tell it not in Gath, weep not in Beth Laafra, roll yourselves in the dust, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shephir, in nakedness and shame, the inhabitants of Zanan do not come out, the lamentation of Beth Hazel shall take away from you its standing place, for the inhabitants of Merath wait anxiously for good, because disaster has come down from the Lord to the gate of Jerusalem. Harness the steeds to the chariots, inhabitants of Lachish. It was the beginning of sin to the daughter of Zion, for in you were found the transgressions of Israel. Therefore you shall give parting gifts to Moresheth Gath. The house of Axib shall be a deceitful thing to the kings of Israel. I will again bring a conqueror to you, inhabitants of Marissa. The glory of Israel shall come to Adullam. Make yourselves bald and cut off your hair. For the children of your delight... Make yourselves as bald as the eagle, for they shall go from you into exile. Let's pray. Father, we, um, we need your help this morning. We need your spirit to guide us through this passage in all wisdom and in all truth. 
We need to be able to see here that Micah speaks not only to the people of his day, the people of Israel and the people of Judah, but because this is your word, it also speaks to us in our day. And so we pray that you would instruct us by your Holy Spirit, that you would teach us, uh, that you would be present with us. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, let me be honest. I know the minor prophets aren't always your speed. I know that they can be some of the most inaccessible books uh, in the Bible and especially in the Old Testament. And that's for two reasons. One, because they demand a heavy amount of history and geography, which we just aren't always aware of. Okay, Um, if you just go through the list of cities that are named in this chapter, how many could you point to on a map? Maybe Jerusalem. Right. Uh, And it's the same with history. Micah is writing to a people who know their times, who read the papers, if you will, right, who are aware of what's going on. And so he speaks, assuming they know what's going on, but we don't always have the privilege. But there's another thing that makes the prophets very difficult. In fact, I guess I'll add a third. Okay, the second thing that makes the prophets difficult is that they deal very heavily in imagery. Right here we have eagles and birds and storms and mountains, mountains melting and fire from heaven and all of these things. Okay, and then lastly, all of the prophets are speaking a time uh, in a time where the necessary message is a call to repentance, which by nature means a warning of impending judgment. Okay, and those can make these books difficult for us. In fact, Micah is pretty much two thirds judgment and one third hope. And like all of the prophets of Israel, God's plan that he lays out is not an alternative between hope and judgment, but actually hope through judgment. In fact, the great emphasis of the prophets in the Old Testament is even though Israel has been unfaithful and there is consequences, God will be faithful to his promises and he will carry them through judgment and into hope. And so here we have the introduction to the book of Micah. Now, one last thing to keep in mind about the prophets. The prophets were men who spoke for God, God called to give a message, and almost entirely their ministries were verbal and public, shouting at the street corners, calling from the temple, confronting face-to-face kings and rulers and these types of things. But the books that we have are not just records of what was spoken, but also in and of themselves a prophetic work, their literature, which means that you don't have, um, you know, dates along the way or a chronological order to the book. Uh, You have an intentionally edited work, a structure. And that becomes significant for us this morning because chapter one is not Micah's first prophecy. It's, It's not his coming out to the world as a prophet. Here is the message God has given me. It has been organized to set the themes and the cadence and the center for the rest of the book. Okay, it has a framing purpose. Now, we see that first in just verse one, the word of the Lord that came to Micah of Moresheth in the days of Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, kings of Judah, which he saw concerning Samaria and Judah uh, and Jerusalem. That operates as the heading for the whole book. And it gives us a framework of timeline, right, by using the king's of Israel. Now, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah are all kings of the southern kingdom of Judah. The northern kingdom of Israel has been 
existing simultaneously since the days right after King Solomon. Okay, so one nation under David, one nation under Solomon, and then as a consequence of Solomon's own sin and decisions, the nation is split. And so there is Judah under Solomon's son, Jeroboam, and confusingly, the northern tribes under the newcomer, Rehoboam. Okay, uh, so Jeroboam and Rehoboam, two kingdoms, both having the history of Israel, the ancestry of Abraham, the promises of God and existing in the promised land, but split into two kingdoms, one capital city, Jerusalem, and one capital city, Samaria. And the kings that are given here, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah, those are all kings of Judah, kings who reign in Jerusalem. And what it tells us chronologically is that Micah's ministry begins right before, in the decade leading up to the destruction of Samaria and with it, the uh, the the demolition of the northern tribes. Now, if you go back and you read in the times of Elijah and Elijah uh, in the books of Kings, or if you read in the book of Isaiah, you will see that God starts to warn the northern tribes that because of their idolatry and their sin, Assyria is going to come in and wipe them out. Okay, And that's exactly what happens. And Micah, like many of the prophets, foretells that, warns of that, and sees it come to pass in his own lifetime. But notice the last king in that list is Hezekiah. Hezekiah experiences the same warnings in Micah's ministry. That Assyria is not just going to conquer the northern tribes, but is also being brought as an element of judgment on the southern tribes. And if you read in the book of Isaiah, you discover that Hezekiah heeds the warning, repents, calls out for trust in God. And so even though Assyria surrounds Jerusalem to its very gates, God miraculously delivers them. Okay, And that is directly due, according to the book of Jeremiah, directly due to the ministry of Micah. Okay, as well as Isaiah. So, look at this passage with me this morning, beginning in verse 2, as it sets the introduction for the book that we're going to look at. Notice verse 2, Hear you peoples, all of you, pay attention, O earth, and all that is in it, and let the Lord God be a witness against you, the Lord from his holy temple. Okay. The first thing that Micah does this morning is he calls attention. He rings the bell. He, he, uh, he gets everybody to turn and to listen. And he says, what's about to happen is God is coming. But I want you to notice in verse two, it doesn't say, hear you peoples, all of you pay attention, O Judah, or O Israel, or O Jacob. It says, O earth and all that is in it. When Micah opens up here, all he says is God is coming in his anger and in his power, but the object is not yet stated. And this is something we see in the prophets all the time. They know that their message will be an unpopular one. And so they have to garner a hearing. And if there's one thing that Israel is listen, or interested in listening to, it's God showing up in judgment. And you might go, that's weird. Why? And you have to recognize the reason is because Israel was a small nation that was greatly threatened by the geopolitical scene of its day. And so if God was going to bring judgment on God's enemies, that also meant protection and salvation for Israel. Okay. 
And so this crowd starts to gather. And what do we have in verse three? We effectively have a theophany, an appearance of God. And I want you to notice that it is, in our language, earth shattering, right? Verse three, for behold, the Lord is coming out of his place and will come down and tread upon the high places of the earth and the mountains will melt under him and the valleys will split open like wax before the fire, like waters poured down a steep place. Okay, what is the picture here? It is one of destruction, but more importantly, it is one of power. What is a mountain compared to the power of God? What are the high places compared to God? In fact, notice this. It says the Lord is coming out of his place and he will come down and tread upon the high places. Now, the language of high places in the Old Testament is used in two different ways, and I think they're both in mind here in Micah chapter 1. The first is it has to do with places that are above the rest of the world and therefore protected. Right. Think of when the psalmist says, you have placed me like hinds feet on high places, up safe above the valleys, above the predators, safe in the high places. Okay. But for God, the high places are down there. Right. He has to actually stoop down to enter into the high places. But there is a second meaning. And it's one that we would flag if we were careful Jewish listeners to Micah as he presents this message. The high places were also the unsanctioned places of idolatrous worship scattered throughout all of Israel. You see, the temple was in Jerusalem and there they worshiped Jehovah, but they had set up high places to worship all the idols of the Canaanites before them and their neighbors, Assyria, Egypt, etc., And you need to remember that the mindset of the world that the Bible was written in was geographic, theologically geographic. Gods were connected with places and things. And one of the things that's striking about the God of the Bible is how often he claims the whole world is his. That there is no territorial advantage to here or there, that he is sovereign because he has created it all and he is king of all. He is God over all the other gods, if you will. And so when it says tread upon the high places here, there's a a clue, a warning. Uh, What does he mean? Does he mean just the high places or does he mean the high places, right? And here we get the answer. Verse five, all this is for the transgressions of Jacob and for the sins of the house of Israel. Notice here he mentions the northern tribes, Jacob, and the southern tribes. His message is for all of Israel who may be divided in kingdom but are still unified in God's mind and the problem is the same, sin and transgression. And then he dials in, what is the transgression of Jacob? Is it not Samaria? And what is the high place of Judah? Is it not Jerusalem? Okay, so notice here, uh, one, that he, he draws the sins, the problem, if you will, directly to the capital cities, Jerusalem and Samaria. And then secondly, notice he identifies Jerusalem as a high place. Okay. What is he saying? He's saying that the very capital, the very place where my temple dwells, the very place where the king of Israel resides, where my law is written, where the ark of the covenant is stowed, that very place has become a high place a place of worship of other gods, okay? And he effectively says, that's a problem, okay? That's why he's showing up with all of his power. That's why the mountains will melt. That's why the valleys will split over. And so notice what he says in verse six. Therefore, I will make Samaria a heap 
in the open country, a place for planting vineyards, and I will pour down her stones into the valley and uncover her foundations. Okay, so basically here he says he's going to destroy the capital city of Samaria. He's going to level it. He's going to lay it out. And as I mentioned, he does this by means of the Assyrian army. And at that point, the northern kingdom ends and never returns. Okay, people who make up the tribes of the northern kingdom do both stay and return. But the kingdom itself uh, and the kings that are represented come to an end at that point. But notice here, it starts with the destruction of the city in verse 6, but look at where it goes in verse 7. All of her carved images shall be beaten to pieces. All of her wages shall be burned with fire, and all of her idols I will lay waste. Okay, what is the target of God's judgment? What is the destruction focused on? Idolatry. That's the problem. That's the issue. And if you read the prophets broadly from Isaiah all the way to Malachi, you will see that this is a constantly repeated refrain. Okay. Idolatry is the problem. It is the focal point. Now, whereas 6 and 7 focus on Samaria, and here Micah says it's going to be wiped out because of idolatry, and that's exactly what happens in Micah's lifetime. And it's worth mentioning that the earliest references to the destruction that would come from Assyria, come from a time where Assyria was a far off and barely known place. Okay. And so the first prophets who carry this message that Assyria is the arm of God in judgment, they're laughed at. Assyria, right? That's like saying Kansas is the next empire of the world. Okay. But over time and change, things happen. And just as Micah and the other prophets proclaimed, this happens. So why do you think we hear about this in chapter one? If Micah's primary audience is Judah, if the majority of his ministry follows after this, why does the first thing the book of Micah wants to focus on is the destruction of Samaria? Because it validates his ministry, right? This is not just something Micah said. This is something Micah accurately predicted. It gives weight and credence to the rest of what he says. But not only that, notice in verse 8. For this I will lament and wail, I will go stripped and naked, I will make lamentation like the jackals and mourning like the ostriches. Notice here we've shifted from anger to sadness. Those two often go hand in hand in scriptures, but it also tells us that Micah is not some sort of with a smile on his face fire and brimstone preacher. The warning he brings here is a warning that breaks his heart, that fills him with sorrow, and he is preemptively weeping over the destruction of his people. His call is not a threat, it is a warning. Okay. But notice he says that he laments, and what does he say in verse 9? For her wound, presumably in the context Samaria, her wound is incurable and has come to Judah, it is reached to the gate of my people to Jerusalem. And so he weeps here because Assyria overflows the northern kingdom extends into the southern kingdom, and as I said earlier, surrounds Jerusalem. And remember that if Assyria does that, they do it while conquering along the way. So the outlying cities in Judah have already fallen. They've already been collapsed. They've already been destroyed. By the time Assyria gets to Jerusalem, Jerusalem is the remnant of God's people. All that's left fled into the walled city at the center of their kingdom. Okay? Which is why, as he goes on here in verse 10, he lists all these other cities, okay, Gath 
and Shafir and Zanan. These are all cities within the southern kingdom of Judea. In, <coughs> excuse me. They're, in fact, all cities in the general area of Morasheth, Micah's hometown. Okay. These are cities that if he stood on a hill in Morasheth and looked around, he could point to. In other words, his original audience, the people that he first spoke to, they know these cities. They live in these cities. They walk in these cities. And he gives a warning here that they're going to be overwhelmed, overrun, destroyed. Now, here's what you can't see in verses 10 through 16. It's a little bit... um, It's a little bit of a slog to read these last six verses, isn't it? And part of it, again, is because you don't know these places. But even if you did, what's the point? What is he talking about that he goes through this roster of cities? What's easy to miss when we read in English is in every one of these places, Micah makes a pun. Okay. And so, for example, he says, um, uh, he says, uh, let's see, where's the one I want? Verse 11, pass on your way, inhabitants of Shafir, in nakedness and shame. Shafir means beauty. He says, all right, beauty town, be ready for something ugly. Okay, that's what he does. And he does it across the list, every time making a play on its names. Now, English translations have a hard time conveying that, and they want the names of the city to remain so that you can find them on a map in the back of your Bible. But also, it wouldn't really mean anything to us, would it? Because it would come off like a dad joke, right? But this is something you need to understand, again, about the audience the Old Testament is written to. All of the people who made up the Middle East, be it in Israel or Egypt, in these places, names were destiny. And you can see this throughout the Bible. How significant is the naming of a child in the Old Testament? It's a big deal. In fact, most of the time, we see people living up to whatever they were named. Names are destiny. And so now he basically turns the names of these cities into omens of what's about to happen, okay? And so it is a strongly given warning. It is danger. And like I said, again, this in the book of Micah validates his ministry because not only did his unheeded threats come to pass, but when he was listened to and there was repentance, the punishment was avoided. Okay, And so that's one reason why this sets the introduction of the book. And you will see this in all the prophets. Look at the book of Daniel. Look at the book of Isaiah. Look at the book of Ezekiel. The first half of the book focuses on prophecies that came to pass in the days that Isaiah, Daniel, Ezekiel respectfully were still alive. It's the second half that begins to reach into the next century and beyond and talk about things that Isaiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel will never be alive to see. And that's intentional. Okay? It's to set the framework and go, like it says in Deuteronomy, if a prophet predicts and it comes to pass, he is my prophet. It is a validation. Okay? But there's another thing here. And this is also true. Like I said, the books of the prophets are not just historical. They're also literature. And so what do you do in an introduction? You set the framework, you give the primary idea, you give the centerpiece. And so if all we had was Micah chapter 1, and we said, what is God's beef with Israel? What is the big problem? What do they need to repent of? What would our answer be? Idolatry. 
It's obvious. It's simple. It's right at the center. In fact, did you notice that as we progressed through his message, it's like the inner rings of a bullseye honing in until it gets to the problem, right? Judgment on Israel for sins in Jerusalem and Samaria, idolatry. Right? Do you see that? It is the centerpiece of chapter one and therefore becomes the framework for the book. But that's weird. It's weird because idolatry rarely comes up in the book in chapters two through seven. Instead, if you were to delete chapter one and read two through seven, and I asked you the same question, what is the problem of Israel? The answer you would give simply is injustice. Now, notice the difference categorically between those two things. Idolatry has to do with religion. It has to do with the vertical relationship between us and God. Injustice has to do with society. It has to do with the horizontal relationship between us and people. In fact, let me just show you how significant this is in the book of Micah. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. Woe to those who devise wickedness and work evil on their bed. When the morning dawns, they perform it because their power is in their hand. They covet fields and seize them and houses and take them away and oppress a man and his house, the man and his inheritance. What does he say here? Woe to those who are figuring out how to steal other people's property while they're trying to fall asleep and wake up and go, I can do this because I'm strong enough. I'm most I'm powerful enough. I have the position to do so. And so they take. Look at chapter three, verse one. And I said, hear you heads of Jacob, you rulers of the house of Israel. Remember how the emphasis in chapter one was on the central cities, the capital cities. So that means it was also focused on the governments, if you will, the head honchos, the kings of Judah and Israel. And so what does he say about them here? Is it not for you to know justice, you who hate the good and love evil, who tear the skin off my people and their flesh off their bones, who eat the flesh of my people and flay their skin from them and break their bones in pieces and chop them up like meat in a pot, like flesh in a cauldron? What is he saying? He's saying the way that you live devours my people. Injustice. They take the power that they've been given, the offices that they've been placed in, and they use it to their advantage and their subjects' disadvantage. Okay. Let's look at chapter 6, verse 10. He says here, Can I forget any longer the treasures of wickedness in the house of the wicked and the scant measure that is accursed? Shall I acquit the man with wicked scales and with a bag of deceitful weights? What is that? That's profits made through deception. When it mentions here deceitful weights, the idea is in a trade culture, you have one set of weights for the value of the product that's coming in and a separate set of weights that's lighter for the value of the product coming out. So you get more silver for less wheat. Okay. But what, what is this? It's unjust business practices that take advantage of the consumer. Okay. Let's look at one more, this time in the final chapter here in chapter 7. Look at 7 verse 2. The godly has perished from the earth. And there is no one upright among mankind. They all lie in wait for blood, and each hunts the other with a net. Their hand is on uh, what is evil to do it well, 
and the prince and the judge ask for a bribe, and the great man utters the evil desires of his soul, thus they weave it together. What is that? That is conspiracy. It is using positions of power to hand out favors and to take bribes. Okay. The repeated emphasis of the book of Micah is that Israel's sin is injustice. In fact, it's not surprising that most people believe that the key verse of Micah is found in chapter 6, verse 8. Here, Micah tells the people of Israel, you already know what you're supposed to be doing. You don't have to ask, what is God's will for my life? What does he say in verse 8? He's told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you, but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with your God. Notice the first one on the list there. God already told you what to do. Do justice. So the question for us this morning is, how do we reconcile the emphasis Micah chapter 1 puts on idolatry and its primary premier absence from the rest of the book? How do we justify that Micah's clear, repeated concern throughout his book is injustice, but it doesn't show up in chapter 1 at all? I would suggest to you that the reason is not because idolatry outstrips injustice in God's mind. Like, look, I hate when you treat each other badly, but when you don't believe in me, or when you put something else before me, I take that personally. That's not the idea here. Nor is these two separate but important categories. And so there's a spiritual reality and a societal reality, and they're both important. What I would suggest to you is there is a foundational reality here. That Micah knows like all of the other prophets attest to, that underlying injustice is idolatry. And so it's handled here because the only way to handle injustice is to make that connection. Listen to how C.S. Lewis put it. All that we call human history, money, poverty, ambition, war, prostitution, classes, empires, slavery is the long, terrible story of man trying to find something other than God which will make him happy. Now notice Lewis's insight. Because we are looking for something other than God to make us happy, what is the result of that? Is it leaving the church? No, it is war, poverty, prostitution, empires, slavery. Listen, We never dehumanize others unless we've deified something that is not God. And as Christians in particular, we need to keep this in mind. We need to see this connection. Now, let me unpack very quickly this idea of idolatry for you, because very clearly, even in the book of Micah, idolatry takes on a very manifest and visible form. How do you know the God that your neighbor worships in the days of Micah? Because it's right there in his living room. He's got a statue, right? He prays to it a couple of times a day. But what we need to recognize is that idolatry takes on many forms culturally from place to place. But here is its core idea. Idolatry is about the thing that gives your life meaning. Idolatry is about the primary thing you need to solve your problems. Idolatry is about the thing that if you lost, would ruin you. Idolatry is about the thing that you find your identity in. Okay? 
And so it's no surprise that the gods that are represented in the Old Testament, when you ask what were they all about, are surprisingly contemporary. They're gods of power. They're gods of wealth. They're gods of security. Okay. And those gods are very much alive in our own culture. Okay. Just take wealth. Okay. Here's, here's an example of what idolatry does. As I said earlier, when we deify something that is not God, we dehumanize others. Another way to put it in the words of Paul Tripp is that when we worship something, other people become either vehicles or obstacles to what we worship. Okay. And so we start to look to the people around us and we see them in wealth as a means to more money. Not as image bearers created by a God who are worthy of dignity, love, and respect. Not as individuals who have their own purpose in life and will stand before God for their own reasons, but as human resources. Which is still one of the worst phrases we've ever coined. Okay? Because humans are never resources. So we either see them as a vehicle, a means to an end, and we will take advantage of them and manipulate them, or we see them as an obstacle. And so this creates a, a mentality of scarcity. Not everybody can be wealthy, and so now it's dog eat dog. Now it's the rat race. Do you see how that language is inherently dehumanizing? Where does that come from? It comes from elevating wealth to the point where there's now a competition, there's scarcity, and we have to win at any cost. In idolatry, the ends always justifies the means because the ends are essential. Okay. And we could do the same thing with power. I just finished reading uh, P.D. James's book, The Children of Men. Maybe you saw the film years and years ago, I think with Clive Owen. It's a good film. It really doesn't have that much to do with the book. But, uh, but P.D. James was a Christian. And she lived in our modern world, wrote this in the 90s, and wanted to write to our culture in a way where they could understand the virgin birth. That was her goal in writing the book. Okay. And so she writes about a world in 2021, of all times, where no children have been born for the last two decades, and nobody knows why. And so the world is just slowly dying out in despair. And what happens is a man takes charge of England. He's called the Warden of England. And he pursues peace and comfort and basically just a dying well for the nation. But he does it in ways that are inherently unjust. And so foreigners to England become basically just home servants who serve the entire life and then are sent over shores. The criminal system falls apart. And if you're accused of a crime, they just dump you on the Isle of Man and you have to fend for yourself among the other criminals. There's a mass suicide uh, arm of the government so that people can take their lives, but it starts to be used to put people to death. And it's no longer suicide, it's murder. And so a small organization called the Five Fishes uh, starts to rally the people against the warden and try and call for justice on these things. And one of the people involved is a man named Ralph. And Ralph... Uh, is involved, and he wants to see not just the end of the Warden of England, but himself on the throne. And his wife gets pregnant, suddenly, miraculously, without explanation. And Ralph realizes that that is the means he needed 
to step into power. But there's an interesting conversation that Ralph has at one point with the main character. And they're talking about the fact that Ralph grew up in church and when he was 12, he left. And this is what he says. He says, when I was 12, I woke up one day and I just didn't believe in God. So I stopped believing. And he said, well, what did you replace it with? And he said, nothing. I didn't need to. But Ralph is wrong. And as the book goes along, you discover that what Ralph worships is power. And so you discover first that if he were in the place of the warden of England, he'd actually do all the same things. He doesn't want change at all. He just wants power. And then later you discover that when he finds out that his wife's child is not his child, that he betrays her and the rest of the five fishes and, and tells the warden of England what is going on. Ralph may not be a worshiper of God, but he is a worshiper. He worships power. And this is a huge problem in our day and age because one of the primary suggestions to solve injustice comes down to power. But an exchange of power doesn't change injustice. It just changed the hands of injustice. It causes us to settle as a culture for us no longer experiencing oppression, even at the cost of us being the oppressor. Do you remember the end of the Hunger Games? Katniss Everdeen lives in a society where people have been perpetually and generationally punished by competing in barbaric games for the victors. And there's a revolution. And it comes to a point where President Snow is to be executed and President Coyne is going to take over and set everything right. But what is President Coyne's idea? To keep the Hunger Games going and just switch the players. And so now it's the capital who is going to fuel the Hunger Games because it's the only way she sees that they will be safe. And so at the execution of President Snow, Katniss and the pinnacle of the book, the only thing that makes it a dystopian, aims for President Coyne instead and takes her life. Because she gets it. Because it wouldn't be a change in power at all. And if Snow is worthy of execution, so is Coyne. G.K. Chesterton puts it this way. He says, when we read the Magnificat, the words of Mary, she says, God has put down the proud and exalted the humble. And he says, every revolution in human history has failed because we do the first and forget the second. We put down the proud and we replace it with pride. This is the problem of idolatry. It is a problem of worship. It is a worship that leads to injustice. And so what does this mean? It means a couple of things for us. First, it means that we have to engage in injustice, seeing the gods that lie behind it. We have to be able to diagnose the problem as, for one, not being merely a problem of hatred, but always a problem of love. Of exalting something else and making it so primary that, again, it dehumanizes those around us. But secondly, we need to recognize that we can never address injustice out there until we begin here. I want you to remember here that part of the surprise of Micah's message is that the people he addresses are the people of God. And it is not that the temple lies in ruins and they no longer worship Jehovah. It is that they have added to their roster of gods other gods. The people of God are the idolaters in the book of Micah. We have to recognize, as Calvin said, that the heart, including your heart, is a factory of idols. And so if we are to fight injustice, we begin not with the issues, not on the streets, 
but in recognizing the place where the same idols that rule our culture flow through our own bloodstream, inform our own decisions in life. In fact, Micah opens up addressing the whole world, and this isn't the only time he does so. In fact, he calls the whole world to weep at Israel's judgment. Why? Because they're the hope of the whole world. Because they're the, they're the ones who are supposed to show a different way and make manifest the God who is. For them to succumb to idolatry is to replace light with darkness and hope with despair. And it is when the church repents and judgment begins in the house of God, it is always in those places where, where societal change stems from and begins. And again, this is novel in our times. Because if you ask most people on the street where the problem of injustice is, it's their problem. And this is why we are constantly finding ourselves with our hands tied by our own doing behind our back, incapable of change, because we will not recognize that we are the problem. Finally, since this is the case, we should recognize because theology and injustice or theology and justice go hand in hand, because idolatry lays beneath it and foundationally, we should recognize this is a tremendously good reason to worship Jesus Christ. Because when we look at Jesus, and remember the New Testament tells us that Jesus was the very image of God, which doesn't just mean that Jesus is just like God. It also means that God is just like Jesus. When we keep that in mind and we watch what Jesus does with wealth and power and status and the gods of this age, what do we discover? We discover that the most powerful being in the universe who created all things lays aside his power and becomes weak for you. And you find that he who was rich became poor so that you might become rich, in the words of Second Corinthians. And you find that even though Jesus himself had equality with God, he did not find it as something to be held on to, but laid aside his reputation and took on the form of a man and even a servant. The thing about worship is it shapes you. What you believe about God shapes how you treat other people, how you see yourself, how you define what the ambitions of the world is. And the goal and the glory of the New Testament is that if we recognize Jesus as God and worship, worship him as such, it will change us. In fact, in Jesus Christ can be accomplished what couldn't happen in the Old Testament. Because through our salvation, we not just get a perfect example, but a substitution and an empowering by the Spirit of Christ to walk in righteousness. We get the means to deal with these things. It says in the book of Colossians that when Jesus died, he disarmed the powers and principalities. That language means a lot of things, and it's really easy to pigeonhole it down and say, well, we're just talking about government, or we're just talking about demons. But one of the things we're very clearly talking about is idolatry. 
We're talking about ideologies that drive human being and therefore drive destruction of humanity. And Jesus triumphs over them in the cross. And what it goes on to say is that in that he disarmed them. Because Jesus's life was perfect, faithful, good, holy, and therefore untainted by these things. And he showed that they were not necessary. Not necessary for identity, for meaning, for fulfillment, for security. Money could neither give Jesus life nor take it from him. Power could neither exalt Jesus, remember Satan's offer, all the kingdoms are yours. Nor could it keep him from taking his rightful place. When we worship a God like that, it doesn't just call us to do justice. It begins to make us just. Let's pray. Father, we are your people, but we are not yet home. We are not yet finished, completed, perfect, sinless. One day you've promised by your work that we will stand before you holy and blameless. And yet we recognize now that we still have that uh, proclivity to sin that our catechism mentioned, that we still have um, desires <coughs> where we turn to idols instead of the living God. When we hear Je <coughs> Jeremiah's indictment of his people, that they forsook the fountain of living water and made for themselves broken vessels that can hold no water, we see ourselves in that picture. But we pray, God, that this morning you would wean us off the gods that do not satisfy that you would identify the places in our life where the ideologies of our time that, um, that destroy instead of lead to flourishing, that we'd identify them in our own life and that we would forsake them. Like in Israel, judgment begins in the house of God. So I pray, Lord, that you would work on us and that we would recognize who you are in Jesus Christ. At one point in the New Testament, Paul says that we behold him. And as we behold him, we are transformed into his likeness. We desire that this morning. We pray that you'd help us with us. And even as we worship you in song, that we would renew our minds in the reality of who you are and surrender these false images of you and these false gods and worship the true and living God the God who is love. We pray this in your name. Amen. Let's take some time and worship the Lord.